0: I'm mm-hmm.
1: Welcome to episode 31 of the Romantic About Baseball podcast. Uh, my name is Adam McKinnon, your host, joined as always by my co-host, Jim Passon, Jr. Jim.
0: Hey, good afternoon. Hey. How you been doing?
1: Doing well, doing well. And our uh, very special guest today is our very first Hall of Famer on the show, Mr. Paul Hagan. Mr. Hagan, how are you today?
0: Hi, Adam. How are you? I'm
1: Adam. doing well. Thank <laughs> you so much. We're for doing
0: good. On. Thanks for joining us today, Paul. Appreciate it.
1: Happy to be here so um you know paul i wanted to kind of get right into it a little bit and uh i want to ask you a question that we try to ask all of our guests right away um and uh what is your baseball origin story where does it start for you
2: well i think it it starts like it starts for a lot of baseball fans with my dad taking me to a game i grew up near buffalo new york um at a time when the Buffalo Bisons uh, were a triple-A team, the triple-A farm team of the Phillies, in fact. Oh, wow. So um, we went to, uh, I went to my first game at a stadium called Offerman Stadium in Buffalo, which was one of these classical minor league parks, and uh, just loved it. I remember uh, seeing uh, Art Mahaffey, uh, Bobby Del Greco. Um, Bobby Wine was, I believe, a coach or the manager at the time uh kirby farrell was the manager at one point uh when they moved over to war memorial stadium where the bills played so um yeah that's uh like like i think most people i was introduced to it by by my dad
1: wow did you and did you grow up a a yankees fan like did you have a team that you really kind of grew up in following
2: i did but it was the dodgers of all okay and the, the reason being that um I went to a, a little elementary school that had a little elementary school library, and the first book I ever remember checking out and reading was called The Pee Wee Reese Story about the great Dodgers shortstop Pee Wee Reese. And so at that point I decided I was, I think I was in third or fourth grade, and decided that I was a Dodgers fan and I wanted to be a shortstop, I wanted to play shortstop like Pee Wee did.
1: Wow. And and did you... Uh, a lot of times... With the Dodgers, you know, it can be a very sort of uh, love, like love to the point of uh, hate relationship. Um, Did you, do you have any recollections of uh, going to, going to Dodger games at all? Did you ever get that opportunity before you Uh, covered them? Obviously, I I
2: grew up in, in, uh, in Western New York, upstate New York near Buffalo. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in those days, the idea of, of going to Los Angeles just seemed like, you know, going to the dark side of the moon. Oh, no, wow. <laughs> seem really very feasible, uh, but I, I can tell you that many years later, um, I had the opportunity to get a job in San Bernardino, California, uh, and cover the Dodgers. And and the first time I was overwhelmed by anything in in my life, it was it was really something.
0: When you—that's uh, yeah, what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's. I've been to the stadium once, and yeah, it's a jaw dropper. It is beautiful.
2: Yeah, especially on a clear day when you can see the mountains. Yep. Now, yeah. it's a gorgeous view. It, it it really
1: is. Did, I heard. I uh, Jim. I saw you react to the Bobby Del Greco reference there.
0: <laughs> I just. I love it. It's just not you know a name that you come across, right? I mean, I see it once in a while in my in uh, reading and researching and stuff like that, but I have no idea. I, it's the first time I've ever seen it. I've heard anybody mention it, so the only time I've ever heard Bobby Del Greco is in my own head until just now. So
2: the big slugger for the Bisons in those days was a guy named Pancho Herrera. Pancho Herrera—that's
1: a—that's like yeah. the most baseball name I think I could have imagined. It's a good one,
2: isn't
1: it? <laughs> yeah.
0: So now I'm looking that up. I'll be busy for a second. So,
1: so did you actually? Uh, what what was the point where you decided like, hey, I you know I. I want to make baseball a a career like when when did the when did that pivot point come for you?
2: Well, um, I mean, I was like all kids, I think, in high school, I played baseball, I played football, I played basketball. Not very well, I would add, but (laughs) I did play. And uh, I I think I enjoyed baseball of all the sports for whatever reason, more than the others. We had a, a little diamond out in our backyard where after school, some of the neighborhood kids would come over and we'd play. with imaginary runners and all that sort of thing because we didn't have that many kids but um so i was i was like baseball um when i was about 10 i saw my first major league game um my one of my uncles lived in the baltimore washington area so we went to see the orioles play the minnesota twins Hmm. uh, early in the season it probably was 61 62 somewhere in there and um I'll, i'll never forget it was the old memorial stadium in baltimore and they sold popcorn in little um, um, containers that when you ate the popcorn, they became a megaphone. So my and I ate our popcorn, now we had these little megaphones, and the twins had a guy named Jim Lemon, uh, who was one of their players, and so we decided that it would be funny to yell sour lemon at him. (laughs) So we we did that, and uh, toward the end of the game, I don't think it was the ninth, I think it was probably the seventh or eighth, as I recall, at least he hit a game winning home run, and I've always wondered if I if I met him, <laughs> I would love to ask him if he remembered two kids yelling at, at him and if, if that's why he uh, had the motivation to hit that home run. <laughs> wow, wow. Did
1: did, did did you go to school for journalism? like was that was that something that you decided like right
2: away? Yes. Um, I went uh, my senior year in high school. Um, the fall of my senior year, my parents said to me, So are you planning on going to college? And I said, well, yeah, of course. And they said, well, you're a senior in high school. It's really time to start thinking about it. (laughs) So I went down and um, uh, talked to the high school guidance counselor and told her I was interested in journalism. And um, so she gave me uh, five or six um, schools that had, you know, well-known journalism schools. Uh, Missouri was a little too far away. Uh, Florida State was one. That was a little too far away. Georgia. So it really came down to Syracuse and Ohio University, and uh, we visited both of them. And uh, Syracuse has a great journalism school, but it's also sort of a uh, urban high-rise sort of school, whereas Ohio U is, is out in the country, it's very pastoral, and I just sort of fell in love with uh, with the whole setting. So uh, I enrolled in Ohio University in the fall of 1969.
0: Wow. Okay. And then did, were you, well, you're there for journalism for, for schooling, but were you also part of the, the university paper then?
2: One of the best pieces of advice I ever got when I went down for orientation, the, the gentleman who was running the orientation said, the classes here are great, but if you are really serious about this, the first day you're on campus, you should go to the Ohio University post and volunteer. And so I did that and uh, covered uh, soccer my fir- as a freshman in the fall. Uh, covered swimming in the, in the wind. Obviously the upperclassmen got the football and the baseball. <laughs> yep. Uh, but it was, it was great training. Um, you know, worked, uh, worked on the desk, laid out pages, wrote, uh, did the whole thing. Made a, made a lot of mistakes, but that's what college is for. Was uh, that a w- weekly publication? No, it was uh, five days a week. Monday to Friday. Yeah. Wow.
1: On top of classes and everything.
2: Yeah but uh, you know it's funny uh, a few years ago the it's uh, called the Scripps School of Journalism at Ohio mm-hmm. University and the hundred year anniversary of the school is coming up I think next year or the year after so a year or two ago um, one of the professors that I had at the time reached out to me and asked me if I would write a, a short chapter for the book they were doing on um, all the people who had uh, gone to Ohio University and then gone on to you know get jobs uh, in, in uh, broadcasting and, and journalism, Peter King being probably the prime example. Oh. Uh, he's probably our most famous alum. But I reached out to probably two dozen uh, people who had graduated and gone on to have pretty good careers in journalism, and they all said the same thing, which I also tell people, which is the same thing the guy told me at orientation. The classes were great, I learned a lot, but the practical experience of the paper was really what, what put it over the top.
1: Right. Teach you how to do deadline and things like that.
2: Sure. Okay. Just how so, to ask a question. How to conduct yourself. Um, you know, writing on deadline. Not that the deadlines were that tough yeah. for the most. <laughs> night basketball games, maybe. But, um, but yeah, just just all the the things you have to learn.
0: And so, by the time you're a junior, senior, you were doing the the basketball, wrestling,
2: football. Yeah, I was a sports editor of the paper, co sports editor of the paper my junior year. And then my senior year, I actually worked in the Sports uh, Information Office, which was interesting to uh, try to see a little different side of of it. And um, then about sometime that fall, uh, the local paper, the Athens Messenger, was looking for a sports editor. And uh, Charles Reamer, who is the managing editor of the paper, I guess I was in their office. Uh, one of the things you had to do is you had to write some stuff for the messenger. So I was in the office and he called me over and he said, hey, we're looking for a sports editor. Would you be interested? And I said, well, of course. Uh, so actually, my senior year, uh, I was the uh, sports editor of the Athens Messenger and worked in the sports information office and uh, finished up my degree. So that was a that was an interesting year.
1: Wow, not, not enough time to sleep. <laughs>
2: Yeah, did, when you're that young, you don't need to sleep. Right yeah. there, you go. Right.
1: Did did you? Uh, so you know, you graduate college. You go. What was your What was your first gig right after Right after you graduate?
2: Well, even though I was the, technically the sports editor, the messenger, um, I didn't have the title until I graduated. Mm-hmm. So when I graduated in June, they gave me the title of sports editor. Uh, went through that summer. Um, went to a couple Cincinnati Reds games. Uh, to cover him just because I wanted to, and got to know Jim Ferguson, who was the uh, PR director at the time, well enough that when I called him for credential, he was nice enough to give me and our photographer credentials credential. So made a couple trips to Cincinnati to cover games down there in the old Riverfront Stadium. Um, that uh, Christmas break, uh, after I graduated, uh, the uh, Bobcats, Ohio University Bobcats, were playing Toledo at home. And uh, I, covered, I had written a column the day before for the paper. I covered the game. It was a Saturday afternoon game. I was walking across the court to go to the Toledo locker room after I'd been to the Ohio locker room. And a guy called at me from the from the side, and it was a, a guy named Phil Fuhrer, who had been the sports editor my freshman year. Uh, he was back in town. He had gone to work for Gannett uh, after he graduated. had gone He was back in town for Christmas break had gone to a game, happened to see the column, happened to like it, uh, and happened at that time to be the assistant sports editor in San Bernardino, California, where they had an opening, ironically enough, for a Dodgers beat writer. Wow, okay. He asked me if I would be interested, and of course, you know, <laughs> the idea of moving to Southern California uh, was very appealing. Yep. Uh, I had actually just been there. Uh, Ohio, you played, um, had a Western trip, to Utah, uh, UCLA, and USC. Mm-hmm. So I had just been out there for the first time in my life and obviously was very impressed with it. Uh, so with Phil's help I got hired there and that was one of the, the the best experiences I've ever had. Not only did I get to cover the Dodgers, which was wonderful, but we, we were a very ambitious little paper. We had six full-time people in sports, so everybody did everything. I covered high schools, junior colleges, colleges, pros, uh, baseball, hockey, football, uh, worked the desk, um, did did a little bit of everything, and that was just a, a tremendous background um, to build on after that.
0: Were you able to cover the Dodgers for the whole season that year, or did you come in in the middle or anything?
2: Well, we didn't, no, I covered, I went to work there in February, um, so um, I covered the whole season. Now, we did not travel, uh, we just covered home game. mm and the, uh, the, the policy back in those days was if the if the Dodgers played a three-game series against the Cubs or the Cardinals or the Mets or whoever, we would cover the first two games, then skip the third game, uh, and then pick it up for the next series, which I guess made some sense from, from their point of view, deploying their resources. Mm-hmm. But what I would do is I would schedule my days off uh, for the third games of the series. <laughs> so I would end up going down... Um, Going down and covering the whole series just because I wanted to. I thought it was good practice. Yeah. I enjoyed doing it. I thought it was good practice. Um, you know, I, I think you learn by doing in a lot of ways. So uh, so I enjoyed doing that. The the one drawback was it was seventy seven miles one way from my apartment uh, to Dodger Stadium. Oof. So that was <laughs> a lot of driving. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but I but I enjoyed doing it. And as it happened, that was nineteen seventy four. Right. Well, the Dodgers made the World Series that year. Yeah. Against the A's. So, hmm. So, against the A's. So, now, we normally probably would not have covered the World Series on the road. We would have covered the home games, obviously. But they played the A's, as you mentioned. And in those days, I think you could fly from Los Angeles to the Bay Area for $15 on PSA. (laughs) So, they allowed me uh, to cover, not just for us, but for the whole Gannett chain. Oh, wow. And and, uh, so, I was up there. I was 23 years old at the time, 23, 24 years old, covering the World Series, having the time of my life. I fell into a conversation uh, on one of the workout days with a guy named Bruce Kyden, who covered the Phillies for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, He mentioned that he was getting off the beat. Now, I was in no way ready at that time to cover the Phillies for the Philadelphia Inquirer, but of course I thought I was. Yeah, right. right. He gave me the name of the sports editor, I sent in some stuff, Um, got a very nice letter back a few weeks later saying, you know, thank you for your interest. Um, you know I'll keep your clips on file we decided to fill it from within but I'll you know I'll be back to you if we ever need a baseball writer. Well I promptly forgot about it. Uh, Three years later the guy who sent me that letter Tim Kelly had moved on to Dallas and was the city editor of the Dallas Times Herald. At the time the Times Herald was looking for a baseball writer and the sports editor was not having a lot of luck finding anybody that that he was happy with so apparently Tim and the sports editor, Larry Charles were out having beers one night. And the sports editor said, you know, I just can't find a, a baseball writer that, that I, I, I'm interested in pirates. Tim said, you know, I, I remember getting some stuff from this kid in San Bernardino a few years ago. I think I got it around somewhere. Let me let me see if I can dig it out.
1: Wow. Yeah. That's that's so that, some it, photographic right, that memory.
2: San Bernardino to Dallas, yeah.
1: That guy kept your
0: file for a couple of years, just hanging out, and it yeah. never left the back of his mind. That's yeah. cool.
1: No, you got
2: to be lucky. You
1: got to be lucky. That's right. Now, you you actually covered two World Series teams, correct, in in Los Angeles? Were were you there in in 77 as well?
2: Uh, No, I was just in uh, San Bernardino for three years. Oh, you were in there for three years? Okay. In 77, I had had moved on to uh, the Dallas Times Herald. Mm-hmm. And uh, we started covering the World Series uh, a couple of years after that. Mm-hmm. And I think I ended up covering something like 30 or 31 World Series in a row. But the first couple of years I was in Dallas, we did not cover the World Series.
1: Did you... Um so, so you co- you
0: covered more Dodgers World Series while you were beat writing in Texas than you did when you were in
2: California. <laughs> that, that, is, that is correct.
1: Now <laughs> yeah, you said you've covered uh, yeah, and you've covered a, a lot of you not only covered a lot of World Series just I mean that's a, a, an incredible number of World Series what what's the difference when like because for example you were covering the, and we'll get to that in a minute but you've covered the Phillies when they went to the World Series and and things like that what's the difference covering when you don't have a dog have a, your team in the
2: fight per se versus when you do well um, when when the Phillies were in the World Series now was the beat writer mm-hmm. uh, when 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 you're covering a, when you're covering a World Series and and your home team is not in it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: you're basically writing whatever you want um, and trying to and, uh, capture the whole uh, scene in one or two stories. Mm-hmm. When your team is in it, you're the beat ri- if, and you're the beat writer, you're going to cover the lead, so you're going to do the game story and maybe a sidebar, but you're also going to have seven or eight other people there, so you don't have to be as comprehensive in one or two stories. Uh, it's more a matter of figuring out what are the stories, what are all the angles, and then spreading them out so you got everything covered. But you don't have to worry about everything yourself.
1: Okay. Was Was there a particular one that sticks out to you? Like, of all of the series that you've covered, is there one or two that really just are like, I remember this one over the rest?
2: Well, I, I think the, the obvious one was the Kirk Gibson home run game in 1988. Mm-hmm. Uh, hit the home run off. Decker Thomas Eckersley, you know, wasn't even supposed to play. Came limping off the bench, hit the home run off Eckersley, who was almost unhittable that year. Uh, Dodgers go on to upset the heavily favored A's in the World Series in '88. So that was that was certainly one. Um, being in Wrigley Field when the Cubs were in the World Series for the first time since 1945 was was really special. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a, a surreal feeling uh, to realize it had been that long. And and I think the Red Sox, when the Red Sox won the World Series for the first time uh, in 86 years, in 05, the White Sox won it for the first time in forever. So I think ones like that where, where teams broke long streaks. Um, the Marlins uh, beating the Indians in... Uh, in uh, 97? 80, 97, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, because the Indians were on the verge of winning it, had Jose Mesa on the mound, in the ninth with a chance to clinch it and didn't. Um, yeah. it was so error. There man. were a lot, but, but if I had to pick one, I think Kirk Gibson's home run would, would be the one.
0: Dang, do you remember uh the energy in the stadium at that point? Is that something that sticks with you? Is that do you replay that in your mind of of the uh Kirk Gibson?
2: Yeah, where you were at, right? Just the 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 stadium literally shook. <laughs> um which which brings up another one that i probably should have mentioned the uh the earthquake world series oh, oh, okay. 1989 <laughs> when the stadium also yeah, literally two,
0: two good world series in a row right there those were crazy
1: so you know I, I wonder you know i asked you about like the series and the game was there a uh was there a player uh, you know you talked about kirk gibson for example is there a specific player that you covered enough times over that over, over your span of covering world series that is there one player that sticks out to you? Like just this, this guy just, just found it during the series. One guy that was just stood head and shoulders above the rest during the, during your, uh, your time covering the world series.
2: Um, I wouldn't say that necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there was a stretch there where it seemed like we were in Atlanta a lot every fall so certainly, you know, Maddox, Clavin, Smoltz, uh, Chipper Jones, mm-hmm. uh, those guys stand out just because I saw so much of them in the postseason.
1: Right, right. All right, well, we're going we're gonna to take a quick break here. And when we come back, I want to talk to you a, a little bit more about uh, what's going on today, you know, and, and, your, and your most recent work. So, uh, so we'll be right back. And we're back uh, joining us uh, on the episode here, uh, if you missed it already, is uh, Paul Hagen, a uh, writer. And um, I wanted to t- talk to you a little bit. We talked about your um, buildup, you know, your, your sort of past to get to where you are now. And I wanted to ask you, um, first of all, you're, you are in fact a Hall of Fame writer. You were inducted in 2013 and you are a recipient of the Spink Award. For our listeners that may not know much about that, can you talk about the the Spink Award first a little bit?
2: Sure. Uh, Well, the first thing I would say is it's a common misconception that Spink Award winners are inducted in the Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are not. Gotcha. Uh, People who are inducted in the Hall of Fame are the ones that have plaques in the plaque room.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, We're in what's called the writer's wing. Uh, If you go through the plaque room... Out the back, up a a spiral staircase. (laughs) Called the Writers' Wing. It's called uh, Mike Scribes and Mike Men. So it's the broadcast, the uh, Frick Award for broadcasters and the Mm -hmm. Spink Award for writers. And it's given annually. uh, Each one is given annually. And uh, I was extremely fortunate and humbled to be able to win that in uh, 2013. Wow, okay. Yeah, that's pretty
0: cool. How, I, and so, like, the, the Frick winner and uh, the Spank winner do their um, their speeches prior to the day that the players and managers that get elected do. In 2013, though, it was just, uh, it was I believe, you and Tom Cheek that were able to give your guys' uh, speeches. And did you guys still do it the day before, even though there was no living players that were being uh, uh Inducted to the Hall of Fame that year?
2: Actually, actually Tom Cheek was all, had also passed away uh, by that time, so um, his his widow uh, gave his speech for him. But yes, uh, the Sphinx and Frick winners uh, give their speeches on Saturday afternoon at Doubleday Field, and then uh, on Sunday is when the, uh, the inductees uh, are honored at uh, the Clark Sports Center.
1: Okay. Now, Go ahead, Jim. Were, were
2: the
0: inductees also uh, have speeches then by relatives or friends or something of that effect? I mean, they were. Uh, I mean, the other inductees with you were uh, Hanko O'Day, Deacon White, and Jacob Rupert. I mean, every yeah. one of them were born in the mid 1800s. So <laughs> they I, they, uh,
2: they had representatives, obviously. Okay, are they like his? okay gotcha
1: did yeah. you did you uh, how much how much time when it like went into your speech like did was this something you really kind of kind of uh pawed over for a while or was it like the night before on on a dinner napkin or something <laughs> uh,
2: <laughs> well fir- first of all they they need a uh the hall of Fame wants an advanced copy of it so you can't do it like before you oh uh, okay <laughs> um so i found out in um in december and the ceremony was in july so i had plenty of time um probably sometime in january february i just wrote a a quick first draft uh put it away and then just as i thought of things uh refined it you know um Uh and and i was refining it up till the end Uh um but uh you know there there's uh they don't want you to go more than 10 minutes so you gotta gotta kind of watch your time right uh and you certainly don't want to forget anybody that you want to thank,
0: right? <laughs> <laughs> how does the how, how
2: does the nomination and voting
0: process go for for that award?
2: So each major league city has a chapter of the Baseball Writers Association, and each chapter is allowed to nominate um, a can- one candidate a year. Uh, not every chapter does. I'm not exactly sure how many. Um, People were nominated the year, uh, year I won it. But um, so then it goes to a, a nominated committee of three uh, people who previously won the award. Um, they narrow it down to three, and then the membership ten year the same uh, members who vote for the Hall of Fame, which is a uh, Baseball Writers Association members with at least ten years, uh, vote for the Spink Award. So that's it's a it's a. It's an award of your peers, which makes it a little extra special. I think.
0: Exactly. So would the Philadelphia chapter been the chapter that... Uh, yeah. Okay. And so if somebody wanted to nominate from the L.A. chapter, it wouldn't have probably been you. It would have probably been somebody from Los Angeles.
2: Well, you don't have to. Um, the the year before I was nominated, the first time of the Philadelphia chapter, I was actually nominated by the Houston chapter. Okay. Because Ivy McLemore felt... And he just, I guess, felt like I should be on the ballot, and he did nominate me, which I appreciated. But the year I got it, I was nominated by the
1: Philadelphia Eight. Okay, when you, um, w- of all of the thing, uh, all of the accomplishments and all, all of the teams, that w- which was more, which was more uh, nerve wracking, go you leading up to your speech uh, at uh, Cooperstown, or was it like w- when the Phillies, like, say, two thousand eight, two thousand nine?
2: Um, probably the speech, only because, you know, when, when you're covering something, it's it's kind of like playing third base. You just have to kind of react quickly. Mm-hmm. Whatever happens, you, you react to it. Um, but when you're writing a speech, that's all on you. And uh, and especially since you do have time mm-hmm. uh, to, to do it, um, I think there's a lot of pressure to, to make it as good as it can be. Um, you know, when you're writing on deadline, you just have to accept, you're going to do your best, and I don't think there was a day when I didn't pick up my story the next day and say, oh man, I wish I'd have done this dip, and I wish I'd have used this word instead of that word. Uh, but that's just part of when you're writing on deadline. Um, that's...
0: You guys just have high expectations, though, up in Philadelphia. As goes for writing, right? I mean, out of the last ten winners of the of the J. G. Taylor Spink Award, I believe four of them have Philadelphia ties. Yeah. You, you, Bill Conlin, Claire Smith, and Jason Stark. I mean, you guys already set the bar pretty high, right? I mean, it should should set you well up for being able to give a speech at the at Cooperstown.
2: Well, I think there's there's a difference between. Covering a baseball game and writing about what somebody else did. <laughs> but uh, but they're, they're both interesting exercises, I'll put it, put it to you that way. Yeah,
0: it's just a lot of amazing talent coming out uh, out of there. That's yeah. pretty cool.
2: Philadelphia has a great, great history of, of baseball writing. And, you know, I loved living in Texas and, and covering the Rangers. Um, but the opportunity to go to a, a city like Philadelphia uh, with the, the newspaper history and the baseball writing history. Uh, that there was up here uh, is it was, it was really just too good to pass up.
1: is it is it true you know i of, co- of course lived in the in the philadelphia area for a while and and i understand can you can you tell us like uh, for those who may not be as familiar with say the the landscape of the philadelphia fan or the fandom is it is it really as tough as people make it out to be
2: i don't think it is anymore <laughs> uh, i think I think it is. Uh, I'm not going to say kinder and gentler, but <laughs> I don't think it's quite as intense as it as it was. I think, for those who don't know, I think the one story you could tell, you would tell that um, that sort of sums it all up. Is in 1980, when the Phillies won the World Series for the first time, uh, in the ninth inning, when they were about to clinch it, uh, the mayor of the city, uh, Frank Rizzo, had mounted police on horses, horseback, lining the warning track. Uh, to make sure that things didn't get out of hand.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's like when they uh, when they had to grease the poles uh, <laughs> later <Don't>. later on. <laughs>
0: That was only forty years ago. That's mm-hmm. crazy.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it, that that it, to, to me that was always one of the defining features. I I've never been a Phillies fan. I've always I was for a long time. I was a, a Braves fan out of water, so to speak. But mm-hmm. it um, it always you gotta uh, you always respected the the ferocity that Philadelphia fans approach uh, approach their teams more more so the Eagles sometimes I think, but the but the Phillies. I remember in 08 when they were about to win, I just remember sitting at a, at a bar in Aston, Pennsylvania, just gripping the table because it was about to come off the bolt of, bolts on the floor.
2: Um, Although the one thing the Phillies fans have going for them is most of them don't tailgate for five hours before they come into yeah. the stadium.
1: <laughs> ah, yes, right. you've been to an Eagles game, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's awesome. Yeah, there's there's fewer few places uh, where a beer at 7 a.m. is acceptable than the parking lot of uh, Veterans Day, or uh, the, the Link now, I guess. <laughs> right. Um,
2: and, and I will say this. When you talk to visiting players and you say, where is the toughest place to come, most of them still mention Philadelphia, if not number one in the top two or three.
1: Right, right. And. yeah. Uh,
2: right
0: especially at that previous stadium i don't think anybody wanted oh, to play on that field boy good grief
1: that was my first game veteran stadium in like 92 yeah. or 93 and it was at the time it was just palatial for a kid it's palatial but then like you grow yeah. up and you think about it and you and your dad's rushing you out of the stadium because he says they're sinking it and you don't know why <laughs> uh what that means you know it's yeah it's something uh, you know, so yeah, the long and short of it is you, you've covered a lot uh, of baseball and, and when you look back on your, on your career and, and you're, and you're talking to like a young, a young beat writer comes up to you and says, Hey, looking back on it, on everything, you know, what, what's one piece of advice you would give them? What's one piece of advice you would give a young, uh, beat writer that's looking to looking to find their way?
2: Well, I, and I've actually given this advice. Um, there's a classic book, which I don't know how many of your listeners have heard of, but it's called The Boys of Summer mm-hmm. by Rocky Tom. And he went back 25 years later whatever and talked to members of the 52-53 Brooklyn Dodgers to see what they were doing at the time and also talked about when he was breaking in. And he tells a story in there about Uh, Dick Young, the legendary uh, New York Daily News uh, baseball writer, who later became a columnist and he said, he tells the story of Dick Young giving him three pieces of advice and I don't remember what number one is, I don't remember what number two is but number three is, don't be so sure (laughs) in other words keep your mouth shut and listen Um, you know, don't think you know it all um, people you're covering know more about baseball than you'll ever know, most likely. So uh, just don't be so sure. If if you walk into a situation and you think you already know, you're not going to learn anything. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I was I always thought that was great advice, and I I try to pass it on to uh, to kids when I talk to them.
0: Okay. Yeah, I've heard that one uh, whistled to me probably from my father, I believe, as a kid. It's basically, I think his way of putting it was a little more of, uh, yeah, the dumbest person you're ever going to meet is the guy that thinks he knows everything, basically, is how he put it to me. The
2: smartest person is the person who knows what he doesn't know.
0: Yep. Yep, exactly.
1: You know, I, I and I. I I, I asked that question because, you know, for example, in it, writing, not just the game, but, but the writing has, has changed, too. The, the way in which games are covered. The way that we access information. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, after you give that piece of advice and you step back and you think about where the game was when you started covering a beat. To where we are now And you, I'm talking about the sort of Social media environment The instant gratification The more uh, And I, I, I hesitate to use this term But the more analytically driven approach It almost feels like sometimes When you read columns It's like if you're not throwing in Like OPS plus And uh, you know Weighted ru- weighted runs created And things like that it, It's almost like you're, you're just put in a bucket You know How do you how do you uh, adapt, or how do you how do you see the landscape now as opposed to where it was when you started?
2: Well, when I first started covering baseball, the big criticism of baseball was that the game never changed. <laughs>
1: <No>. <laughs> Clearly, no. that's
2: not relevant anymore. <laughs> the game has changed tremendously, just really even in the last few years. Yeah. Uh, I think. Um, I mean, I I couldn't have imagined. Um, when I started talking about robot home plate umpires
1: right? <laughs> um, I guess the the one story
2: I would tell in 1974 before game 5 of the World Series which ended up being the clinching game, Oakland clinched that night uh, it was about 45 minutes before the game and I was sitting in the press box and for some reason I decided I really ought to go back down to the Dodgers clubhouse just to make sure nothing was happening and I went down, I walked into the Dodgers clubhouse 45 minutes before the final game of the World Series started. These days, for a regular season game, you're kicked out an hour before the game. Um, and you don't even get into the clubhouse at all in the postseason. So, you know, back back when I started, uh, cameras didn't go into the clubhouse. TV cameras didn't go into the clubhouse. Uh, your traveling party might be or three beat writers and maybe a wire guy
0: mm-hmm. from
2: the other city uh, the, what is what the media is has exploded um, you know with blogs everybody's a member of the media when you think about it yeah. um, sports talk radio was not a thing when I started um, podcasts obviously were not a thing when I <laughs> so,
0: uh,
2: the the amount of information that's out there, uh, is just exponentially larger than it was. So I think there's that. And then, as you mentioned, uh, the analytics revolution. Uh, I personally don't think it's as big a thing as a lot of people make it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that scouts always looked for guys who could throw hard uh, and, and could, you know, make the, have a sharp breaking ball. You know, now you call it spin rate and velocity, yeah. um, but it's it's the same thing. Or hit the ball hard. Now we call it exit velocity. <laughs> um, so I, I think the things, the the things that we look at are the same things. Uh, they're just measured differently and more accurately, obviously. Um, I don't think that. The, the best teams, the smartest teams are necessarily the ones with the most information because I think everybody's got more information than they know to do with. I think the smart, successful teams are the ones that know how to pick out what's important and what isn't.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, so I think that's those are probably the biggest changes. And and in, in terms of you know the interpersonal relationships with players um, obviously the beat writers aren't as close to players uh, as they used to be Uh, partly because the beat writers used to matter frankly used to matter more than they do now Uh, back back in the day when I started that was the primary way that players were portrayed to the public through the beat writers who followed them every day now as we said there's so many different ways they have their own they can tweet their own stuff they don't need a writer to uh, to interpret what they said they can just say it themselves uh, and they make so much more money mm-hmm. uh, you know as recently as i would say 20 years ago it wasn't unusual uh, to go into the hotel bar after a game on the road and see some players in there and sit down and talk to them have a couple beers with them talk about the game whatever now or at least back the last time i traveled a few years ago you don't see them out at all um, they they go to private rooms and stay in their rooms or private clubs or whatever, and I understand that. Uh, I think the the biggest thing is cell phone cameras. Uh, you know, now that now that you're in a situation where you can be sitting there, you could have one beer and go to your room and get nine hours of sleep. But if you strike out the next day and somebody has a picture of you from the night before drinking a beer, then it becomes, "Well, see, see, that's why he struck out in the night before," mm. which is ridiculous. But I don't blame players for being more careful, uh, than, than they were.
1: I want to kind of expand on something you just, you said that I think is kind of interesting. It used to be the beat writer was the sort of interpreter for, for the players. Do you think in the times before this level of accessibility, do you think there's a player that whose story may not have been done justice that way or may not have been may have been interpreted differently now than it was when there was only one person per se to to interpret it
2: um i'm sure there are uh, the one name that comes immediately to mind is dick allen mm-hmm. um, uh, rookie of the year for the phillies in 1964 had a tremendous career uh, but was considered a quote-unquote troublemaker, I think, by some of the writers, because he was a nonconformist. Yeah. Um, he didn't uh, play by the, the so-called rules. Um, I think today he would, he would be uh, considered ahead of his time. <laughs> uh, certainly wouldn't, wouldn't be... I think there would be a lot more understanding of where he was coming from, uh, the, the racism that he experienced uh, in his life uh, particularly at uh, Little Rock Arkansas when he was coming up through the minors with the Phillies mm-hmm. uh, society being different than what it was these days um, so I think that's probably a, a pretty good example of a guy who would be portrayed differently today than, than he was back then
1: okay um, and, uh, and uh, I guess Jim unless you guys I got one last question for, for Paul
0: yeah, go for it. Go for it. I'm I'm, I'm listening away. I kind of got lost in the story a little bit there, so yeah, I'm back.
1: So, so I I was wondering in in it, when it's all when it's all said and done. You know, it, I I would never dream to ask a writer to pick a favorite column or a favorite anything like that, but when it's when it's all said and done, is there something distinctly Paul Hagen about? Your writing is there something that stylistically you felt or you feel because you're you still you know kind of you know you're still kind of active in the game so to speak. Um, is there something that you strive for or something unique you think that you do that sets you apart from other writers? And is there is there anything that you can give other writers like how do you develop a style or a signature in that way? So, what's your signature, and how do you think you develop that?
2: Um, I I don't know if I have a signature. I think that that's probably for other people to decide. Um, I do think it's important to read a lot. I, as I think I mentioned to you, I love mm-hmm. I love to read, um, and I think it's important to read outside of sports. Uh, I don't I don't think just reading sports stuff really gets you where you need to be. I mean, in 1992, I was sitting in Los Angeles, planning to cover a baseball game that night, and ended up covering the Rodney King riots Hmm. for the next three years. Uh, In 1989, I was sitting in Candlestick Park expecting to cover the World Series, and ended up covering an earthquake. (laughs) So, so, you know, I think you have to keep your eyes open. Uh, What I always tried to do was uh, maybe be a little more in-depth if possible, not just take the the obvious angle and the easy explanation, but but look a little beyond that and try to explain not just what happened, but why it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think any beat writer strives to tell people something they don't know. You know, yep. breaking breaking a story, um, I was fortunate enough my first year on the beat in Philadelphia to break the story that uh, the manager, John Felsky, was going to be fired. Uh, that's a good feeling, you know, mm-hmm. to, I mean, I, I think if, if you, there are some writers who I admire as writers a lot, uh, and they write beautiful prose, but at the end of it, you say, you don't say, wow, I never thought of it that way, or I didn't know that. You say, well, that was really well written. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you like to write it as well as you can, but in the end, uh, a newspaper is supposed to give you news. Uh, so, what I, as much as I tried to write everything as well as I could, uh, I thought the reporting was the most important part. I thought that was number one, and everything else kind of flowed from there.
1: That's uh, excellent. Well, uh, yeah, making sure to paint a picture
0: to go with it, right? I mean, that's what.
2: Well, so, sure. You want to want to write it as vividly and as eloquently as you can. Yeah. But but if you're just repeating something that somebody already knows, I'm not sure you have really advanced the ball at all.
0: Yeah, I think that's the key, right? That's the that's the big difference between you and and the blogger at home, right? Somebody like me, right? Is that it's going to be? I mean, it it is. It's it's experience. It's passion. It's being around it and being in it. It's you can't. It's hard to replace that. It's already when you have that ability, you have that ability, and then so probably you know i would think for paul when he writes maybe he scrutinizes himself harder than i ever would scrutinize him and thus his work is so much better than i would ever expect so yeah that's
2: pretty good what are are you doing to
0: get through the COVID days
2: (laughs) (laughs) well um my son and i are in the process of trying to open a restaurant um so uh we were we were hiring and training uh when all this hit um Pennsylvania' is getting ready to reopen so we're inching back uh, back forward trying to get a restaurant open uh, doing a lot of reading um, doing a lot of binging Netflix and Amazon Prime and HBO <laughs> and things like that
1: what are you watching uh, what are you binge watching
2: oh just I, I go through stuff uh, I just finished the uh, the new season of Bosch on Amazon Prime I, I like that nice yeah um, um, in the middle of the plot against America on HBO, the, the uh, um, miniseries adapted from the Philip Roth novel.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's so, awesome.
0: Now, were you able to ever find time to do this when it, without COVID-19? Were you just always too busy to binge-watch anything?
2: Uh, back when I was when I was a, a beat writer, um, from I would say the middle of February till about November first, not too much time for anything. I tried to do it all between November first and the next spring training.
1: There you go. Yep. Well, gotcha. Paul Hagen, thank you, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you, and, and I hope you I hope you stay safe and and uh, we're looking forward. I know when I come back up into the uh, into the southeastern uh, Delaware County area, I will be frequenting your restaurant. So I, I well, appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. yeah.
0: yeah I appreciate you coming. Up.